the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. Those stark words from 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 6 are Spurgeon's text for a sermon entitled From Death to Life, preached on the 26th of July 1863 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. It's our featured sermon for this week, number 523, in our selection of 521 through to 527 for the week beginning Sunday the 5th of June 2022. And how needful and how valuable those words are for us as we continue to work through the sermons of this servant of God. Spurgeon very easily divides this text into a natural meaning and a spiritual meaning. So he's not so much dividing, perhaps we should say, the text itself as the meaning of the text along these two separate lines. Its first and most manifest meaning, the Lord brings down to the grave and brings up, describes the agency of God in life and death. And here he makes a point that I think is absolutely vital to us today. In our scientific and technological age, it's in that sense no different to the Victorian period, the same appetite for advance, the same measure of human pride. And he talks about the way that our Puritanic forefathers were accustomed to speak of God as restraining the bottles of heaven or sending a gracious rain, sending forth the wind or hiding it in his storehouse. But we've grown so wise, he says, that we begin to understand how the rain is formed. And we talk about the winds as if we had been into the chambers from which they come howling forth, and as if we had discovered all the secrets of the universe. We ascribe events to second causes, to the laws of nature, and I know not what. Now, here's his point. I think it were better far if we would go back to the good old way of talking and speaking of the Lord as being in everything. While we do not deny the laws of nature, nor decry the discoveries of science, an important couple of qualifications, we will suffer or allow none of these to be hung up as a veil before our present God. O oh, foolish wisdom, which widens the distance between me and my heavenly Father, O oh, sweet simplicity of love, which sees the God of love in every place at every hour. I need no telescope to see my God with. Behold, O oh, sons of men, he is here, and my heart joyfully perceives him. I hope you see Spurgeon's point here, that we're accustomed to see second causes as if they were ultimate or first causes, that we're accustomed to leave God out of the picture and imagine that because we understand some of the processes by which God works, the means by which he accomplishes his ends, that there is no God there at all. Perhaps as Christians, it would be good for us to start thinking and speaking with that present sense of God among us and at work in our lives, so that when we think of the, the rain or the wind, when we think even of life and death, when we think of uh, disease and of health, when we think of uh, what takes place in our daily lives, that we're much quicker, more openly and evidently to trace these things back to the works of our God. And so, says Spurgeon, God is in life and death, in sickness and in health. This, surely, will soften the pains of sickness and gild the joys of recovery. If you look upon sickness and restoration as merely the products of natural causes, you will not feel humbled when you are stretched upon the bed, nor grateful when you walk out again and breathe the fresh air. 
But if you see God's finger in touching your bones and your flesh, you'll be humbled under the chastisement. And if you discern his hand in restoring your youth like the eagles, you will be able, like David, to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And in a world that's very quickly troubled by COVID-19, by monkeypox, by other such things, it's important, on the one hand, that we don't decry science, but that we don't set up the science and put it in the place of God that we understand that there is a divine operation here and more than merely a natural cause at work in the world. And when we think in that way, when we understand that we cannot then and should not forget God, we should remember him, speak well of him, have his name in our mouths all the day long, then this precious fact, says Spurgeon, should produce several gracious results in our hearts. First of all, it should awaken gratitude. What a mercy it is that we are here this evening, he says. You would think it more a mercy, perhaps, if certain of those seats over there had been left unoccupied because those who sat there but a few days ago have gone the way of all flesh. He's reminding his congregation that there are people who were there the previous Lord's Day who were not there on this present Lord's Day. Now, not all of us, perhaps few of us, are in congregations large enough for that to be always true. But Spurgeon's conscious that there are people who have been ushered into eternity between hearing him last Sunday and this Sunday. And so even in recreations, he asks, what dangers dog our heels? You you might laugh at people who thank God for journeying mercies and journeying protections, but he says, I always like to offer to my God thanksgiving for mercies known and mercies unknown. Christ had unknown sufferings, and we enjoy as the result of those unknown mercies. His point then is this, that we should be grateful to a God who not only kills but who makes alive, who brings down to the grave and brings up this general sense of God's engagement, God's involvement, God's intimate control in the details of our lives. And furthermore then, that sense of the Lord at work in our midst should compel consideration and lead us to pray that sickness and health may be sanctified to us. God never does anything without a purpose. And so we should ask a blessing upon our troubles as well as enjoy the blessing of our blessings. To say grace over a table not so well loaded as it used to be, over broken bones and aching heads, over pains and pangs and partings, for there you want grace more than anywhere else, with the exception, it is true, of your prosperity, where you'll likely need a double portion of his spirit. So, says Spurgeon, think about what's going on in your life. Trace it back to God and give him thanks accordingly and plead his mercies in the light of what is taking place. Then this should cause great searching of heart. Suppose I had died when last I was sick. Was I then prepared to die? Suppose you had been caught up before the judgment seat of God on your last car journey when you were last unwell, when sickness last swept through your community, when you went for a walk. While we are preaching to you, 
and pleading with you and weeping for you to turn to Christ and trying to lift up Christ Jesus upon his cross in the hope that the Spirit may thereby attract you, Spurgeon warns some that you are getting to look upon the gospel as an old, old tale and upon the preacher himself as one whom you've heard so often that really he is growing quite tedious and dull. Now, says Spurgeon, have you considered just how merciful God has been to you in sparing you to hear another sermon? Do you understand how close you've been to judgment? You keep putting off the day of repentance by perpetual procrastination. You live in a continual suicide, always destroying your own soul. That which does not melt you hardens you, and so you grow worse and worse. So let the judgments of God lead you to try your hearts and to see what your state before God may be. When you consider how life and death hang in the balance with regard to God's dealings with you, search your hearts. Then, especially for those who are believers then in Christ, to be restored from sickness and to be back among God's people should suggest renewed activity. You've been spared. You've been given a further opportunity to serve. You've had another opportunity granted to work. Not then to say, oh, I need to take care of myself, as it were. I need to back off. But rather, how can you loiter? Now is the time to be working with all your might. Work with both your hands by night and by day. Sow beside all waters. In the morning, sow your seed. In the evening, do not hold your back your hand. Let the nearness of death and the shortness of life be to us as double spurs to stimulate our jaded spirits to fresh action. That's a potent thought for us today. We may, we may say, well, yeah, we're okay. We haven't had those kinds of impacts. But we ought to consider whether or not the very fact that we haven't been subjected to some of those limitations and restrictions should stir us up to serve given the strength that we have. And then one last thought that if the Lord brings down to the grave and may do so at any day, we ought to be very watchful. We ought to be alert. We ought to be on the lookout. If the Lord brings down to the grave and from that grave he does not bring us up again to work, though he will bring us to the reward and to the rest which remains for the people of God, then we need to be ready for the coming of that day. And so, says Spurgeon, I want to move on. I want to now speak about the spiritual dimensions of this text. And here again, Spurgeon is uh, using a, this division of sense in order to cover a lot of territory. There are these eminently practical, natural applications, but there are also eminently practical, spiritual applications. This text seems to indicate a state of heart through which those pass who are brought to God. And now he's going to start dealing then with spiritual experience. There always is in every case, he says, though not to the same degree, a stripping time before there is a clothing time. There must be an emptying before there is a filling. There is a digging out of the foundation before the building up of the house. There is a time in which this verse is fulfilled. The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. This then is the, the trajectory, the experimental or experiential trajectory of the one who is coming to Jesus Christ. First of all then, a sinner is led to hear his own sentence pronounced. He was, 
careless and thoughtless, but now he thinks, thinking he perceives his sins. Perceiving his sins, he fears an angry God looking down from heaven. Yes, even the sword of God drawn, reaching down to smite him on account of his iniquities. And so there is this this death, as it were, in the soul, this awareness, this sense of, of coming to an end of oneself, that you are speechless with regard to any self-justification. You can't say, I don't deserve this, but rather it is most just and I deserve it well. And further, the convinced sinner is often made to feel not only the sentence and the justice of it, but the very horror of death itself. You realise what is at stake. You realise that you could be ushered unprepared into eternity, that you might come before the judgment seat of God and be cast down into the darkness of the pit. And you wonder, how am I still alive? And I'm not ready to die. I, uh, how is it that God has been merciful to me? I'm lost beyond hope. I'm ruined beyond remedy. If I came before God now, I would be utterly undone. Well, says Spurgeon, That's the path that you have to follow before you are brought to God. And then there's another further death which the convinced sinner is made to feel, and that's the death of his inability. While we're unregenerate, he says, we think we can do everything. Nothing so easy we imagine then as believing. Mere child's play to pray to God. Quite a trifle to turn to the Lord and get a new heart. But when a man begins to work in real earnest, when the Holy Spirit begins to truly work in our souls and persuade us of our need, it's not the easiness, but the hardness of it. It's not the the tenderness of our hearts that surprises us, but their toughness and their hardness. It's the fact that we cannot save ourselves, that these things don't just happen as and when we might wish that they did. And so we must be emptied thoroughly of all creature strength. We must come to the end of self. It's when you're strong that I'm afraid of you, says Spurgeon. When you are weak, then my hopes are high. The climax of your disease is just the dawn of my hopes. When you've come to the end of yourself, then perhaps you're ready to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the Lord bringing down. Here is the Lord bringing to the spiritual grave. And, says Spurgeon, there are many precious promises for such. And he does something here in his sermon that's, I think, relatively rare for him. You don't get a sense uh, often that Spurgeon is, as it were, flicking around his Bible. I don't think he's necessarily doing so uh, with the Bible open in front of him, but, but perhaps he is. From time to time, he'll say, now, now please turn in your Bible if you have one and look at such and such a text. Here it seems he's more referring to things as he goes and he begins then speaking of these different scriptural characters and prophets. There's Jonah here, there's Jeremiah, there's Ezekiel, there's Hosea, there's Job, there's Heman the Ezraite and he's picking up then in each of these books, in each of these Uh, portions of God's word, the language that these men use to hold out promise from God for those who've been brought low. So just a couple of examples. Here's Jonah. For you have cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. 
I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet have you brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. This is the kind of language that the the prophets and the preachers of the past have employed. Or Hosea, where God kills by his spirit, he always quickens by the same. He does not in this life kill our legal hopes and carnal security without by and by making us alive. And so Hosea can say, the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Haman the Ezraite is the same in the 88th Psalm. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Your wrath lies hard upon me. You've afflicted me with all your waves. I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer your terrors, I am distracted. Your fierce wrath goes over me. Your terrors have cut me off. And yet this man of God received comforts after all from the God of his salvation. You yourself, here's the application, you yourself are not brought so low as you would be if you had a still clearer view of your sins. In other words, Spurgeon's saying there's there's scope for greater grief if you really grasped your sins. But remember, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of his light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. And then here's here's the, the, the key point. Let me beg you then never to be satisfied until you get a saviour. Do not be content with any comfort short of faith in Christ. Do recollect, dear friends, that you must not be satisfied because you have good desires or because you experience holy feelings. No, close with Christ. Believe in the saviour. And that, as far as you are concerned, is the first clear proof that God has begun a saving work in you. And it is for you, though dead and ruined, though swooning and fainting and unable to do anything as of yourself, to swoon into the arms of the Saviour, to faint as many a child has done into its father's arms, to die into the bosom of the Saviour and lie buried in his grave. And this is a happy, happy way of being nothing that Christ may be all in all. And now Spurgeon doesn't even stop there. Notice, he says, that where God has thus killed and brought down, we may rest assured he will certainly bring up again. And here again is that trajectory of the text. Here's the the, 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 the downward followed by the upward. Beloved friends, says Spurgeon, the Lord does not send his Holy Spirit to bring to a sense of their need those sinners whom he does not intend to save, for that were a waste of his divine energy. Spurgeon's point here is that if you have felt this emptiness, if you have come to these conclusions, if you felt your sinfulness, if you faced the justice of God, if you've grasped your inability, if you've come to the end of self, then that in itself is hopeful because this is what God does in the hearts of those in whom he is at work. And he says, then you can anticipate comfort. Now when you, you've brought to the lowest point, now you're ready to call upon the name of the Lord. Now you're ready to find him who is ready to be found of all who come to, to him. You may be brought to feel yourself, he says, the lowest, the worst, and the most useless of all creatures. But if the Lord has set his love upon you, you are gold in his esteem. Nonetheless, because of the ashes and the dunghill upon which you may be cast, and he will yet bring you up again. 
Now he says, you may not yet know that God is at work in your heart. You may not yet grasp what is taking place. You may still be longing for comforts. And Spurgeon says, take this as your comfort, that if God has brought you down, then he will bring you up. The Lord can give comfort as he pleases. I don't know the manner of it, says the preacher. It may come suddenly. Before this service is over, you may feel all the joy that a believer can know. It may be that the Lord will reveal himself to you as you're walking home or tonight while you're in your prayer before you go to your rest. It may be that you're, you're pleading with the Lord, save me and show me that I'm saved. Lord, bring me up from the pit, from the miry clay, set my feet upon the rock. And that may be the moment when light, as it were, gushes in upon you, when peace and joy come to your heart. Or possibly it will come gradually, he says. First the blade, then the ear, and then the full corn in the ear. There are some to whom the light of life comes as the light of the rising sun. First a glimmering twilight, then the ruddy hues upon the clouds, then a flood of light, and afterwards the sun has fully arisen. It may be so with you. But there is one thing I know, he says that when your hope does come, when God quickens you from your grave, it will be just at that moment when you're led to look away from your own feelings, your own doings, your own willings, and to look to Christ alone. So whether more gradually or more rapidly, those comforts come when you are hanging upon Christ and when you have given up upon yourself, when the Lord has slain you with regard to your own proud expectations and when he's lifted you up in and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Begin with looking at the cross. Now, says Spurgeon, here's an important qualification. Although I've been talking to you about how God wills to bring us down, I have not set up these feelings as a standard of experience or as being the ground of our salvation. So he's saying, don't assume that the description is a prescription, that you must go through everything that I have described in the way that I have described it, or you cannot be converted. Neither are those experiences the ground or the foundation of our salvation. They're not the basis on which we can say, I am saved. He goes on, a sense of need is a sign of our salvation, for no soul ever will come to live through the life of Christ unless he has first been slain by the great sword of the law. No sinner ever comes empty-handed to Jesus till he has been knocked down and robbed of all the worthless trash which he prizes as jewels. But still, I say, for all this, the thing which saves the soul is for that dead, helpless, swooning, feeble, lost, ruined soul to look to him who hangs on on yonder cross, where the just suffers for the unjust, that he may bring us to God. So we are not saved by looking at our emptiness, but rather by looking to Christ in his fullness. We are not saved by parading our worthlessness, but by resting on the worthiness of Jesus Christ. We are not saved because we commend our own sense of need, but by bringing our our empty souls to Jesus Christ in order that we may receive him. Some of you say, he says, that you cannot believe in Christ because you have, have, you have such terrible convictions. You wish you had not felt them. Another class of you said, if you'd had these horrible terrors, you could believe in Christ and there's no pleasing either of you. Now, he says, if you've got the convictions, the Lord who brings you low will bring you up again. 
and you that don't have those convictions, if your experience is not identical, still you have this preached to you. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So Spurgeon is, we might say, going after particular people in this way. And he says in closing, oh, that my master would bless these few rambling remarks to some of you. I don't like drawing the bow at a venture, he says. I can't bear that metaphor, but I do love to draw the bow at a certainty to smite some of you. And I would to God that the Lord would do that now. So here he is preaching pastorally. He's conscious of the different kinds of people who are in front of him, different characters, different experiences. And he doesn't want his preaching to some to be a means in the devil's hands of bringing down others. He doesn't want to exclude some by trying to bring in others. He's conscious that there are some who are brought low and them he's trying to encourage. But he's also wanting to make sure that those who aren't so brought low in precisely the same way aren't then discouraged because they haven't had precisely the same experience. And so he talks about some of the people in in the class that is presided over by a lovely lady called Mrs. Bartlett. She had uh, hundreds, I think, maybe even thousands eventually of young women under her care, teaching and instructing them. And so he says, you young women who do take an interest in the things of God, may the Lord now decide you. I want to speak personally and affectionately to you now because you may be in the grave before another Sabbath day. And he says, I'm preaching to a congregation where probably at least two will be called into the presence of God every week. Who are those two? Not just the sick, but perhaps those who are now presently in good and strong health. You need to be ready. You need to be ready. You're in the Sunday school, the Sabbath school, he says. I'm so pleased to hear of the boys being converted and of the girls being brought in. But, oh, children, you, some of you may soon make that little hillock in the cemetery with your young bodies. You want to be Samuel's now. And you grey heads, what a multitude of old men we always have in this assembly. Glad I am to see the fathers here, though I often wonder how aged Christians can be fed by such a child as I am. But still, those grey hairs only make a fool's cap for you if you've grown old in sin as well as old in years. So here he is, right at the end, sort of as it were, shall we say, righteously shooting from the hip. If you're old, if you're young, you boys, you girls, whoever you may be, remember, remember, if the Lord is bringing you down, it is that you may be brought up. Make the most of these things. Make the most of these trials. Do not uh, neglect what God is doing in your heart, in the, uh, either in the natural way of things or in the spiritual way of things. And so he closes this sermon with one verse of one hymn to be sung, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Here then again is a, is a pleading sermon from this preacher. Here is a man who, who discerns clearly on these various levels the truth of God's holy word. And here is a man, whether he's speaking in terms of natural experience or spiritual experience, wants us all 
to understand just how rich in mercy God is toward us and to make the most not just of the the high points but the low points, to understand that if God kills, he makes alive. If God brings down to the grave, he brings up where there is mercy in his heart toward a man, a woman, a boy, a girl. May God help us to take these things to heart and may he spare us that we might next week take up Sermon 531 on the Warrant of Faith. Thank you again for hearing and may God bless these truths to our souls still that we may see the hand of God in our lives and respond as we ought. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.